Okay, now for our sermon today, it'll be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Ministry of Reconciliation. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. And as has been mentioned, we're just a little over 24 hours until we start fasting. So I'm preparing now. But tomorrow night at around 7.15 or so, we all will enter into, once again, the Day of Atonement. Many of us have done this for, for many years. We've heard many message, messages about this. I don't want to steal too much of Steve's thunder, as we were talking about earlier. But I do want to talk real briefly and just think about some of the things that this day represents. Atonement, that's a word that we hear often, right? That's a rich theological term. The idea of atonement. This day of atonement represents many things in God's plan of salvation. It's a day of covering. It's a day of removal. It's a day of affliction. A day of cleanliness and holiness, of course. A day of humility and, of course, a day of reconciliation. Which is a concept that I want us to focus on today. The word reconciliation has several meanings in the English language. One of them, a couple of them I'll bring, but one of them is the restoration of friendly relationships. And another one is the action of making one's view or belief compatible with one another. And that's in the English. In the Old Testament, the word reconciliation is from the Hebrew word kapar. Now we know that Typically, if you look at a calendar on your phone or, uh, you know, a, a federal calendar, typically you will see on the Day of Atonement, it's marked as Yom Kippur, as the Jews call it. Kippur meaning, of course, having a root, Yom meaning day, and Kippur being related to that idea of atonement, reconciliation. And quite literally, the word atonement brings with it the implication of many things but at the core, the removal of tensions between two parties. The removal of tensions between two parties. And as I was reflecting upon what to bring today, this day, just a day or so removed from the Day of Atonement, a week removed from the Feast of Tabernacles, try not to steal too much thunder from the Day of Atonement and those who are preparing messages, which is, me and Steve, I'm actually giving a sermonette. But I couldn't help but think of a story of reconciliation that's found in the very early chapters of the Bible. The story of Joseph and his brothers. And I want to quickly just review this to kind of open up this message. I want to go to Genesis, the 37th chapter. So if you turn there with me real quick, we're not going to read the entirety of the story. It's a long story. Wonderful movies have been made about this story. There's been plays that have been um, presented. I think Branson has done Joseph. Uh, I think that uh, Eureka, I don't, you know, all different kinds of uh, organizations have put on plays about this story. But I want to begin in Genesis 37 chapter. We're going to go to verse 12. But at this point in the Bible, uh, we see that Joseph 
he has this favor that he's been given by his father. And his brothers, they don't really like it, right? And we see this young boy that's kind of younger than most of all the brothers, and he parades himself around and talks about dreams, of course, that uh, have metaphors that are symbolizing his brother and family bowing down before him and serving him. And so you can probably just in yourself, you know, reflect on your thinking of reading this story. And these brothers, it's, it's not, uh, it, these are stories that he's talking about that they don't take too kindly about. They don't get real warm and fuzzy to this individual. But we start in verse 30, or chapter 37, verse 12. We're going to read the great betrayal of Joseph real quick. It says in verse 12, then, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel, that is Jacob, Jacob's known as Israel. Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks. And bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? Verse 16, So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. A very famous story that we've all heard. His brothers are going to betray him. Verse 19, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, that one brother that stood up, he heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness. And do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they had stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors, that was on him, that we know his father gave him, and which became a source of contempt, I guess, for the brothers and their jealousy. Verse 24, then he took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal, and then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? If we kill him, we're not going to get anything out of this. Let's at least get something out of it, essentially is what Judah is trying to say. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And Reuben 
returns to the pit. Indeed, Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, and where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a, killed a kid of goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it, whether it is your son's tunic or not? Verse 33, and that is Jacob, he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. We can put ourselves in Joseph's shoes, but we could also put ourselves in Jacob's shoes. Just how terrible that would be. Verse 36, Now the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. And so that was the beginning of Joseph's story to some extent, but we see there's all of these different things that happen. When this happened, Joseph was 17 years of age, or somewhere around there. It's not very old, is it? Just to be a boy at that age, going off into a foreign country, being sold into slavery. But we know that Joseph found favor in God's sight, through God's providence, and he was able to get on the good side of that individual that ended up purchasing him named Potiphar. And for a while, he had favor in Potiphar's eyes, but eventually Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph, and he finds himself in jail for many, many years. So now you have this individual that has been betrayed by his brothers, his own flesh and blood, sold into slavery, sold to a guard, Finally, things are getting a little bit better. You know, the circumstances could be worse. And now, he has another unfortunate event happen. And he finds himself in jail for many, many years. But again, we see God have favor on Joseph. And has this ability to start interpreting dreams, all the way down to interpreting dreams for Pharaoh himself. And he interprets this dream of this coming seven years of plenty and seven years following it of famine. And in that, Pharaoh recognizes the gift, recognizes that God, as the scriptures say, is with this man. And he appoints him as the prime minister over all of Egypt, especially when it comes to over the agriculture or the grain of the land. Now this in and of itself, to some extent, is a story of redemption. We see a man that has befallen terrible circumstances, that God has seen him through, that he rose from the very bottom of slavery, in jail, to now, essentially, being this leader in this great nation, as Egypt was very powerful back in these days. But we know that that's not the point of the story. It's not about Joseph becoming in power in Egypt. A big crux of this story is about what would happen at the end. 
reconciliation. And of course, about God fulfilling his promises because we see this is how Egypt, or Israel rather, ends up in Egypt. During this story, and I'm summarizing it because I don't want to read all of these chapters, but I want to get to the very end of Genesis. When we read this story, one of the events that takes place is, is that this famine comes upon not just Egypt, but all the surrounding land, even where his old family, Jacob and his brothers, lived. And they're forced, Jacob that is, forced to send the brothers to Egypt to find grain. And through a series of events, we read in the story that Joseph and his brothers are reunited together. And there are many moving scenes from this story, but there's one in particular one that I want to focus on. And it takes place right after Jacob, the father, passes away. Joseph invites the brothers and family and all of their families to Egypt to live in Goshen. That's how they become living in Egypt later on when we find the story of Moses and uh, the Israelites in slavery. But now Jacob's dead. And we have this question that's posed by their brothers. Now our father is dead. Now maybe Joseph will seek vengeance on us. Verse, or chapter 50, 15 through 21 of Genesis. We read, when Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph's response was to weep. He was moved to tears. Because Joseph, in this moment, and in the moments before, he had recognized God's hand all along in his life, in his journey. Verse 18 said, Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And what's interesting here is that we see the dream that Joseph was actually parading around come true through God's providence, through God's workings. And it was many, many, many years, I'm sure, between the two events that have taken place. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am, in, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is to this day. To save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Such a moving story of reconciliation. Such an example that we see all throughout the Bible. Even in our own lives. And in individual relationships to an extent. But of course with our relationship with God our Father and what he's done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. We can read this story in its entirety and learn so many things about how God works. And I would say, 
one of the overarching things is that through God, one of the most difficult things in this fallen world becomes possible that is so hard for us in our human nature to accomplish. And that is a restoration of relationships. It's a difficult thing in our human nature. People wrong us. It's difficult for us to want to forgive. It takes a change in heart. And I can tell you, I would imagine that Joseph probably wouldn't have forgiven his brothers if he hadn't went through all of those things. And on the other end, God had been working with him and showing him these things were actually something that God worked out to save many people. As I mentioned, the, or was mentioned, the title of my message today is taken from a set of passages that Paul actually writes to the Corinthian church in his second letter to this young group of believers, or these early Christians. And we're going to go there today, and I want to read a few passages because Paul talks about this idea of the, the ministry of reconciliation. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 18, real quick. Uh, excuse me, I'm actually going to go to verse 16. Uh -huh. Let's go to verse 16. I think I actually gave eight, verse 18 down, but I'm going to start in verse 16 a little earlier. It says this, Paul says, Therefore, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Very, very deep set of passages that we could spend weeks and weeks and years delving into. I do want to bring out a few things, because the interesting thing in verse 16, Paul says that we no longer view Jesus as we used to, according to the flesh. And that's perplexing when you first read that. What exactly is Paul meaning here? And it appears that Paul is drawing this distinction between how we view things from a purely human perspective versus how God perceives things. I can't help but be reminded to our Bible study when we were talking about Jesus and the disciples and, of course, how they viewed things and how they weren't able to quite comprehend everything that Jesus was saying and it seemed like they were, and then all of a sudden they would, you know, go along in the story, and apparently it just went right over them. Because, see, Paul, he had this life that he lived that was very righteous according to the flesh, right? He's a Pharisee, he's a Jewish person, strict adherence to the law, 
But regardless, the criteria that he was judging people and, of course, Jesus Christ was a flawed system because it was based upon man's thinking. It was a paradigm of thinking through the lens of his Jewish heritage how he viewed people, including Jesus. And he did not recognize Jesus, of course, as the Savior. Paul says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Now you could take that as meaning that he was a living human being, died and rose again in glory, and we don't know him as a human being anymore. But it seems in the context that Paul is getting at is that we no longer judge Christ. We have been given this gift to understand who Jesus Christ is because we've been open to the heart of God. The heart of God has poured out in us and allows us to see who Jesus Christ truly is. Paul is talking about a mind shift, an opening of the eyes where we see the world in a different light. We see the world and things and interactions differently. And a quick illustration, thinking back to what we just talked about, I want to compare this to reconciliation, of course, but I want to think about Joseph's reaction. We learn about Joseph and the story and how he reacts to his brothers. Put ourselves in his shoes. Do we have such a mind shift through Christ and through what matters in this world and through God's Spirit? And we see things through the heart of God. Would we react the same way if this trauma, because I'm sure this was a life, I mean, it wasn't just life-changing for Joseph where he was physically and that he was removed for his, his, his family, but no doubt this changed him inside that he probably had PTSD to an extent. He had a lot to overcome. He probably had some depression. Things that he had to fight through. Would we be able to do the same thing that Joseph did? Has this reconciliation that's been brought about to us through Jesus created in us, as Paul will talk about in a minute, a new creature to such that we would be able, because our mind is shifted and we have God's spirit, to be able to react in this way. And of course, none of us have been sold into slavery probably. I can't speak for everybody, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident that that's the case. I'm confident that we haven't experienced the exact same things that Joseph has. But I know that we've experienced things in this life where people have wronged us. And we see that happen all the time. Do we, have, do we have the heart of reconciliation? A forgiveness in our heart, a willingness to forgive. Do we see things the way that Christ sees things? Because I can tell you this, we know when we read the story of Jesus that the people who crucified Jesus, they meant it for evil as well. Specifically those Romans. Now the Jews might have felt like they were being righteous that this was a blasphemer. But they did the same thing, and we know that in the end, God meant it for good, to bring about the ability of reconciliation. 
The next thing that Paul talks about, and this is related, he says, all things are new. He tells us that another outcome of being in Christ is a new act of creation on the part of God. Through this reconciliation process, and we've had a baptism last week and we're having one come up, we become a part of a new creation. God, through Christ and the Spirit, comes and lives within us and creates a new person in us in Christ. And we see that when we think back of, of our former lives, we know that that's the case. We can think to our baptism. All of us went to diff, you had different circumstances uh, leading up to our baptism. But we all probably led a different life that wasn't focused on God, right? That really wasn't focused on serving God and wasn't probably an acknowledgement to who we were before God without Jesus Christ. There's a passage that Paul would write later on in Ephesians or in another one of his letters, Ephesians 4, chapter 17 through 24, and we've read this before. It says, verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. All of us, at one point before our conversion, walked in these ways. It might not have been to the grotesque level, physically, as maybe how people sometimes lived in this day and age. But nevertheless, inwardly, we lived for ourselves. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart. The blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And some of us can remember some of those former ways. All of us are differently, how we live for ourselves. And of course, we know that we realize who we were before God without Jesus Christ. And the implications of that. Verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I wanted to go to this because, you know, a lot of times we read this leading up to holy days like the days of unleavened bread and things like that but as I was thinking about what Paul was talking about and this new creature that we have within us we would all agree that even though there's a new creature that's being created according to the likeness of Jesus Christ and the stature of Jesus that sometimes some of those former ways are still a temptation to us we still live in this fleshly body and we have to live in the world it's just part of it. And we have to be tempted by the worldly things. And some of those things are physical. But many of them are, of course, spiritual. Their attitudes, their demeanors, the selfishness, self-centeredness, anger, bitterness. We're all subject to those things. Subject to those reactions as people maybe do us wrong, or people 
maybe aren't as kind to us as we feel that they should be, as you have to work with people, maybe at your job, maybe it's family members or things like that, all of us are subject to those temptations to react, not according to the new creature that's in us, but according to our old conduct, the conduct of human nature. Rereading 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 through 21, he says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry, the service of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is why the gospel means good news. Because this is good news. A, the enmity between God and man has been removed through this individual, Jesus Christ. Verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is a very powerful part of the passage, or the string of passages. Paul is telling us that God didn't just politely decide, well, I tell you what, you guys have done these things, you've sinned, and we're, I'm just going to politely not impute the punishment. That's not what God did. God fully removed the sin. He fully removed and dealt with it literally by placing it on Jesus Christ and instead imputing upon us the punishment, imputed righteousness to us. And through this, he has removed the enmity that existed between him, the holy God of all the universe, and us, carnal, sinful, fleshly human beings. There's many things that we can look at on the Day of Atonement, but at the core, we know that there's symbolism, there's Leviticus 16, there's these two goats, the sins being placed on the goat and led away, one sacrificed, it symbolizes this enmity being removed between humans and God. And there's a few points as I uh, wrap up that I want to leave us with about this passage and about this idea of a ministry of reconciliation. The first one is, God did this for us. Now that might sound funny and obvious. He took the initiative himself there was a broken relationship, not on any fault of his own, but on the fault of us as human beings. And he took the initiative, the one that has been wronged, took the initiative to fix the relationship. He took the initiative to remove that enmity between us and him. Now this has been said before, but I think it's worth repeating and something I was thinking about whenever I was thinking about this idea about how when we look at the character of God and about how oftentimes it's very distinct from what we see from other world religions or ideologies. And that is God takes the initiative and does things before we even act. Before me and you repented of our sins, Jesus Christ took our place. 
In the Old Testament, and this is something that we, we've mentioned before, but we're going to read, of course, in a few days at the Day of Atonement like we do. We're going to talk about uh, the offering. We usually take up an offering, and we go to one of the traditional passages of Deuteronomy, the 16th chapter. And we read about the three times in a year. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16 says, Three times a year all your males shall be, uh, appear before the Lord your God and the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Verse 17 is the key to this. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. God gives the blessing first before the offering was given. God initiates the blessing before we respond. It's something that is unique when it comes to the religions that we see in the world. God doing the work himself before we do any of, of course, our part. The second reflection, we are ambassadors of Christ. We've heard that before. Ambassadors of Christ. In light of this reconciliation that Paul is expounding upon, he says that his associates are bringing this news to them as ambassadors to, of Christ. Now, we have ambassadors. Ambassadors is the Greek word presbio, meaning to be a senior that is an act as a representative. And this word is usually used as an elder who is experienced and would serve on behalf of a king from one country to another. We have this in our country, right? We have an ambassador to China or an ambassador to India or an ambassador to you know, all these different countries. Paul is expounding upon how through the work that was done through Christ, the enmity and incompatibility of our sinful actions and behaviors have been removed and we have become ambassadors to this message. That we now are, of course, in the world. The kingdom has not come yet. We're waiting on the kingdom. But our citizenship is in heaven, as it speaks of. We are still yet part of the kingdom that is not yet. And we are acting upon that as ambassadors to this world that we are no longer a part of. We're a part of the world, but our identity does not belong to it any longer. Our identity belongs to that coming kingdom. And in that way, we are ambassadors to God. Last point of reflection. And this is just, when we think about reconciliation, relationships, all of us here might have a relationship that's hasn't been reconciled. An issue of falling out with a loved one, maybe a family member, maybe a co-worker. Being an ambassador for Christ, I think, means that we try to go and do what we can to restore those relationships. That doesn't mean that we're going to go out and we're going to act like, you know, we're going to, maybe we've removed certain people from our lives for, for reasons of their sinful behavior and things like that. But enmity that may exist between you and someone else, I encourage you to have the heart of Christ and make amends if you can. To practice that characteristic of God that he's demonstrated between to us. 
It may be, we talk about a ministry, it may be a way that your light can be shown through you to that individual, maybe if they're not a believer. But I encourage all of us to be ambassadors in what we're preaching and what we're teaching and trying to tell people, but we also live out that ministry of reconciliation and right wrongs and forgive. I'm not saying forget and let people walk all over you, but have the heart of Christ. Think about what's been done for us through Christ. That enmity that was removed by God through Jesus Christ. And we take the initiative maybe to try to restore that relationship. Like God took the first step to restore the relationship that he has with us. In conclusion, we know that Christ and our Father in heaven have given us this ministry of reconciliation at the very heart of the Christian message is a story about God reconciling the world back to himself and it's a wonderful thing to think about and that's not the only part of the Bible that we know where that story of reconciliation is we find it all throughout the scriptures we find examples in the cycle of God making an attempt to bring about reconciliation through individual characters in the Bible, through stories, and even see prophecies of a world that's been reconciled. Colossians, the first chapter, verse 19 through 20, he doesn't just talk about reconciliation in 2 Corinthians, but he says in verse 19 through 20 of Colossians 1, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We know that we look at the end part of Revelation and there's that allusion, the very last where Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. It's a restoration. It's a restoration. Now how matter, no, how, no matter how much mankind has altered itself for the worse in this world through being alienated from God, corrupted by the morals of our societies, there will be a final day when God reconciles all and makes all things new again through the powerful blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. In a few days, when we celebrate or we observe this day of atonement and we afflict our souls and we reflect on what this day is all about as we see this day approach this day of atonement and how meaningful it is I encourage all of us to think about the author of reconciliation and how we have been given in this walk a ministry bent on the heart of Christ and the Father that is reconciliation and restoration